Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What do you do when life doesn't go according to plan? That moment you lose a job, or a loved one, or even a piece of yourself. I'm Brooke Shields, and this is Now What? A podcast about pivotal moments as told by people who lived them. Each week I sit down with a guest to talk about the times they were knocked off course and what they did to move forward. Some stories are funny. Others are gut-wrenching. But all are unapologetically human and remind us that every success and every setback is accompanied by a choice. And that choice answers one question. Now what? I'm loving your book, Flipping Boxcars. Now, can you tell the audience what that means? Because in my world, it was actually flipping boxcars, like with your middle finger. That was something, my mom is from Newark, New Jersey, and that was what I I thought it was. No, my you know my grandpa was a, was a dice roller, famous dice player, and again in the forties, dice players were like akin to the poker players that we know today. You know how we today poker players are famous, and you know who they are. You can name right. different ones, and so my grandfather was one of those guys. And the box cars is two sixes, and it's a it's a rare thing. I think it's it pays some crazy like thirty to one or something. Like it's a big. It's a big payoff if you hit it and you call it. Yeah, if you call, well, you have to call to call it. That I do know. But then, did, would you have to have other people hold them to make sure they're not weighted? There's little gamblers there, like they making sure nobody's cheating, right? Because it's all about this, this feel and this kind of, you know, luck being with you and all this kind of idea that people, in, you know, believe that they have these power over the dice to make them do what they want them to do. My guest today is a game changer, Cedric Kyles, better known as Cedric the Entertainer. He's a comedian, actor, game show host, and much, much more. He got his start in stand-up, then became a household name as one of the original kings of comedy, and also for his work in blockbuster franchises like Barbershop and Madagascar. 
Since 2018, he starred in CBS's The Neighborhood, but it's his latest venture as an author that has my attention. His new book, Flipping Boxcars, was a thrill to read, and I loved talking to Cedric about the real-life inspiration behind the story. He's someone I greatly admire, and I can't wait for you to get to know him, too. Here is Cedric the Entertainer. I'm loving the book. I, I just, I want to know everybody that, that's in it. Why did you decide to write this book about your grandfather now? You know, it was interesting. It was this, this kind of thing. I grew up in a single parent household. So my mom, it was just me, my mom and my little sister. And so, you know, the ideas of some of the, the behavior I have as a man, I was wondering where it came from. And, it, you know, I've never met my grandfather. He had passed before I was born. But uh, my mom would say I would just do certain things just like him. So it's like a DNA thing, right? Where wow. you're kind of connected through someone, through just... Uh, osmosis, or if you will. And so uh, the fact that I had these few little stories about him and, you know, who he was as a person. How much of the book is real? I mean, is it, did you have to really balance? Yeah. Was, was, was there anybody alive who knew him? Oh, for sure. You know, again, my, it was a few people that we spoke to that knew him as a friend. Of course, then my my mom's uh, brother, the older uncle who kind of grew up and was a teenager being pulled in some, to some of his father's shenanigans uh, at Ooh. the time. So my uncle had great stories. Uh, and, so, and so he was the one that kind of told me a lot of these things that kind of set up the world, helped me really set up the world. And then we we took the, you know, the kind of creative liberty to tell this this tale around these uh, three, four days around 4th of July in 1948. So that's where the kind of fictional tale comes in. Some of the, the people and the relationships, I changed some names to protect certain people. I have, you know, real relatives that they needed to be more of a hero. So I just changed them completely and like <laughs> made up like them with totally different personality. I can totally see this as a Broadway like a one-man show. Oh, I love that. It's so interesting because it takes place in the 40s. Yeah, yeah. So much of your style that I've I've know you as that era. I mean, just the you're the clothing, there's this dapper, wonderful. Were you uh, what were you like as a little kid? <laughs> Could you imagine? Were you can you imagine were you just like that little boy with the fedora and spats and <laughs> I can see you, the little zoot suit, a little little boy in a little zoot suit. <laughs> Hello, sir. How are you? Hello. How is it you're finding your day today, yeah, big man? I mean, Hello. How are you, sir? No, yeah. Now, I was a pretty dapper little kid, to be honest, though. That was funny that, you know, because we lived in this little town that's in the book, Carruthersville, Missouri, until I was about... Um, you know, maybe about 10 years old before we moved to St. Louis. And then, but my mom was, she went away to college and she was one of those people that, you know, before online clothing basically knew how to order out of catalogs all around the world. And so I, I was known to be a very sharp dresser as a kid. I, I can remember uh, like my teachers complimenting me on my clothes and kids thought we were rich because I would always have on these little nice outfits, but it was mainly because my mom could, you know, knew how to kind of order and not get everything from the local store. And so she would uh. get things delivered and I would have these cool little outfits <laughs> Everybody loved the way that me and my sister. I love it. My mother would buy only from 
thrift shops. And then my first day of third grade, she took me to this <laughs> store and I she bought me gauchos. Nice. But I looked I looked like I was auditioning for newsies. Like it was so bad because I got into this school and all of a sudden these kids are in ripped jeans and like rock and roll t-shirts and I was like extra extra <laughs> you know like this little this little weirdo who oh it did not help my social life but uh. to be dapper is is amazing. So the the book is touching in in so many ways. In writing it, did you discover something about yourself even more in the similarities between you and your grandfather? Yeah, I think, you know, one of, one of the key things I thought was really in, that I, you know, had fun discovering was this kind of, uh, I don't even know, is a driving spirit, a renegade spirit to want to be more, to be different than the status quo, right? And I kind of always had that. You know, I remember uh, my mother used to say I was always scheming up a dream. I was always trying to figure out how, like, I didn't, you know, uh, my mother was an educator. So going to school, going to college, that was all a part of our upbringing as far as my sister and I was concerned, but who's a professor now? She teaches at Pepperdine. Like, so like education was what everybody was doing, except for me, I just did not want it. And I had this kind of, you know, wild Mustang, you know, horse, you know, where I just need to run free. And so I, you know, I found my, my grandfather was a lot like that in discovering like his aspirations, his ideas. I say he was one of the first people to have a food truck when you think about it, because he would make his meals and then take them out to the field workers and charge them, you know, like a quarter or, or nickel to eat. And they would grab the sandwiches from him and drinks. And that was his business. That was another little business he had. He, he just had little, his hands in a lot of little things. And, and so I kind of discovered like that spirit of wanting to be more that spirit of like, you know, I, I, I just don't want to be a comedian. I want to be an actor. I don't want to be an actor. I want to write mm-hmm. books. I don't want to just write books. I want to sing songs. Like I just, all these things are like, is, I believe kind of came from his spirit, if you will. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. 
and you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because God, I can't stay where I am, like I am, where it is. This isn't going to work. I, I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, if no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men how this beguiling woman in her 50s she looked like a million bucks with zero qualifications she had a harvard plaque tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents she's got all of these maseratis and bentley's all in the driveway is it like a mansion yes it's a mansion that this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes about six million approximately 11 million dollars nearly 10 million dollars was all gone employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry she would probably have sex with one of her clients hide your money in your old rich man because <laughs> she is on the prowl listen to queen of the con season five the athlete whisperer on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts I love thinking about where people are when they were younger and then where they are after a full career. And was there a formative moment or time in your life as a, as a kid that sticks out to you when you think back? Yeah, probably. You know, I think that once we moved from uh, Carrollsville to St. Louis, it, there was this idea that the world was so much bigger. When you live like in a small town, uh, and you know, you can be a bit of a big fish in this small town, mainly, mainly because I had cool clothes. Right. Uh, but, but I think that, you know, when you go, we actually moved to Chicago first for a minute and it was a little overwhelming for my mother, but as a kid, it was definitely something I saw like, yo, I need to be in the big, I need to be out here. I need, I need, this is me. Like, and so once I got to, junior high school in St. Louis, um, you know, it was the, it was this, you know, this mixing in with the kids, these, these urban kids, the idea that I can be funny around them, that I had a funny personality. It was the first time I used to go, it was the first time I changed my name. I, I used to go by, my family name is Tony. And so all my life I went by Tony. And when I got to St. Louis, the teacher called my whole name. My name is Cedric Antonio Kyles. And so when she said, Cedric Antonio Kyles, do you go by anything else? And I said, no. And I go by Cedric. And from this point, I just, that was, that was moments where you decide like, I'm this guy. I'm not that guy. Did you do impressions? Like even as a kid for like, were you that guy to your friends? Yeah. Yeah. I could do like, of course, like the teachers or <laughs> versions of people not like dead on impressions like I, I couldn't really like mimic folks but I could do a version of someone you know that would be 
funny, uh, you know, a teacher or a preacher or somebody like that, somebody that we all kind of identify with. And so those were my things. But then we used to do the dozens or they call it Joan, Jonin in St. Louis. They call it Jonin. So we would, you know, you go in the lunchroom, you talk about somebody's outfit or, or oh. they or, you know, what they, you know, like how they're, they're not smart or whatever, you know, you, it was the, that was the whole move. And I was the king of the lunchroom. So people used to just wait. All my friends be like, wait till Sid show up. You don't want no smoke when Sid show up. <laughs> and were you a, you were a theater kid too, right? Yeah, yeah I did theater. Uh, but mainly as a minor, again, I, n- I never like kind of jumped into it as my, my main thing, both in high school and in college. I minored in theater, but never really, you know, I, I, I studied broadcast and communications in um, in college and minored in theater. And then, but I did plays and I was, you know, constantly, you know, part of the, the theater scene. But it's so interesting when you, then you had a, a bunch of odd different jobs. Oh, yeah. I mean, a very variety. Yeah. Anyone yeah. stand out for in particular? You worked for what, State Farm? I worked for State Farm. I was a claims adjuster, you know. <laughs> claims adjuster. I like that. I was Jake from State Farm, baby. Let's go. Oh, my, <laughs> oh my God. Oh, yeah. Asset. He'll adjust. Yeah. He'll adjust <laughs> you. Who's at fault here? <laughs> oh, well, that's a role, too. When did you first really realize that comedy professionally was an option for you? You know, it was um, it was after I was working at State Farm, uh, you know, and then somebody entered me into a comedy competition. And uh, the first time I did it, I won $500. And that was it. That was like really the hook because it was one of these things of knowing like it's, it's money to be made. And it was a guy that I knew that was a professional comedian that would go and he would come and be like, yeah, I made $1,400 this week. I made $1,100 that week. And I'm thinking, man, this dude is making more money doing that than I do at my job. And so, you know, once I kind of recognized, like, it was lanes where people can go and and they didn't have to be famous already. And he was just kind of explaining that he would travel around to do these comedy clubs all around the country. He'd get a, he'd gotten a part of the circuit. And, he, you know, once he explained it to me that that was actually a, a route, you know, I had to convince my mother that I didn't want to work in corporate America anymore, but... But, you know, I, I set on a path to do that, to like, all right, I'm getting out of here. I want to I want to be a stand up. So it took a couple of years. But, you know, it was I did it with strategy, though. And not knowing the strategy, was there anybody that was helping you or were you just learning on the job? A little bit of both. Like, again, like I said, I knew a comedian who knew how to do it. He had done it before. He was doing it as a professional uh, I was very popular in the city. Uh, it was also an opportunity for in St. Louis where, you know, going on the radio in the morning, calling in, being a regular person, you can get like little pops when you go on the radio and people will say, oh, man, I like when a dude calls in. Then I would do a comedy night and sell it out. And so you started to get a lot more confidence in yourself and believing. And then uh, that that really became the choice right in there where you kind of hit that tipping point where you believe you can do this. And I was making enough money on the side, not like re- really replacing my my job, but enough money to where I was like confident that I could pay my bills. So, Do you have any like video? Were you able to find any video of any of your of your stand ups that you could look back at? You know, I'm not really, a, you know, I'm really, uh, I saw this special on uh, Joan Rivers and really felt bad that I'm not as 
kind of archival as she is, you know, like Joan yeah. like had like every all her jokes and files and had everything kind of organized and you know, I definitely have some great great moments on stage that have been recorded that I have no idea where they are. I'm surprised they haven't surfaced, you know, because people find each other, especially yeah, in this age cool. of of digital. When you think about your stand-up, how much of it for you is a character versus the real said? I know it's, a, it's like a, it's very, very close. When I'm on stage, I really allow a lot of yourself to be exposed. And so now I'm I'm actually more probably more cerebral, more business-like in normal life than I am when I'm on stage, like where everything is kind of coming out as a joke. Like I don't think in jokes, which is what people are quite <laughs> surprised. Like I'm not a, I'm not like a super jokey joke person. Like when you see me, you go like, oh, no, you're going to say something funny. <laughs> like it, I usually have to be in an environment when, you know, where the energy is flowing and then my natural personality will come out and I'll start saying a bunch of funny things like back to back. But I wouldn't I wouldn't really sit up in conversation with someone and try to be the funniest person there. That's not like how I think. Do you think comedy has really dramatically changed since you started? Well, no, only the the addition of, you know, kind of the, you know, viral comedy that's on YouTubes or, mm. or TikToks, I think, the, which is great, you know. But I think, you know, from the, the days when it had to be stand up and you had to kind of construct a joke from the setup and then kind of delivering a great punchline uh, while taking someone on a journey to get to get them to laugh at the end. But nowadays, because people can like just shoot it, create a character, do something right in front of you. Uh, these, these, I think that that's changed, you know, the expectations a lot of times uh, when people come to comedy clubs. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because, God, I can't stay where I am like I am where it is. This isn't going to work. I have to move on, but I don't know where. 
A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, if, no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...with zero qualifications... She had a Harvard plaque. ...tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. ...that this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes about six million approximately 11 million dollars nearly 10 million dollars was all gone employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry she would probably have sex with one of her clients hide your money in your old rich man because she is on the prowl listen to queen of the con season five the athlete whisperer on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts When I see a show like the original Kings of Comedy, I see that as kind of quite a renaissance for the industry because, you know, it was a, it was a huge phenomenon. Yeah. Also, yeah. there was a mainstream focus on non-white audiences. Yeah. And that was, you were at the forefront of that, which was so, uh, for me, I, you know, because I'm mean, we're the same age. Yeah. And... All of the people, the shows that you loved are all the people that I loved. But when you see a show like your show, that there's a whole world that had not been fully, fully accessible yeah. until then. I think that's what really made it so unique and great. You know, and for, and for us, it was like, you know, in the early 90s, uh, you know, like I said, I started in the 80s and 80s comedy was definitely different. Like it was all about white comedy clubs. You had to go in, you had to kind of, you know, fit your jokes into a certain kind of box. And then the 90s kind of brought about this kind of, you know, African-American, this black comedy scene where you're right. The audience just allowed you to do it in shorthand. You didn't have to fix things for people. You didn't have to you know, try to like, you know, say it the correct way in order to get to the joke. People knew what you were talking about because of the overall common experience. And so I think that that was really great. And then the Kings just came along and, you know, kind of put it on steroids. And so uh, <laughs> it, it was just a really fun time to be a comedian and a big run. And not just on stand-up because we had shows, you know, you had Martin and the, and the Steve Harvey show and Wayne Brothers. We had a lot of sitcoms on. So it was a lot of room to to be seen and to make money and be great and great notoriety. And uh, that was a really interesting time in this in this city and in the world. And then immersion, really, you know, do you think that that space kind of let you grow in a way that you hadn't before? 
Oh, for sure. Because once now, once people see you and kind of see what your abilities are and they can see what you can do, now you're known for who you are. And now you have the ability to kind of cross over and do things in a more natural way. Like you can just let people know, like, yeah, you know, but I, you know, I also, I also went to college. I also worked in corporate America. So it's not all hood jokes, you know. I'm not, <laughs> you know, every joke I have is not going to be about the hood. Like I, like I had a job, you know, like so. Oh, it's so amazing how quickly we're, people are reduced to, you know, it's, there's, there's this ability to be more than one thing is yeah. such a shock. It's a shocker to people, especially in our industry. It's like I used to, I fell in the, I fell off a stool in the pilot of Suddenly Susan. And I kid you not, for the next four years, I was falling off of something all the time. And I kept saying, please give me more. Please give me smarter comedy. I don't always have to fall on my face because then it's not as funny. <laughs> it's a good faller. I'm, yeah. What, what would you think? Oh, she falls really well. Um, but this show is called Now What? And it's about the pivotal moments. does sound like you've had, had very many. But if you had to pick one pivotal moment in your life, good or bad, where you were really th thrown and you had to say, okay, now what do I do? What one would you choose? Man, you know, you know, it was it was, it was one that I thought that, you know, I, I was kind of talking about this the other day, like in the early, early 2000s or so, I was having a good little movie run and I was having fun doing movies. And of course, uh, Hollywood was a little tough on the, uh, on the budget. So movies were being shot everywhere, right? I was going from Prague to, to Dublin, to Vancouver, Toronto. And, you know, and it was fun, you know, because you get to see the world that way. And, but my kids were young and I could take them with me. And then it came a point where they had schedules and I started to book movies where I was going to be home. I mean, gone like three months, four months. And I just realized like, that's just not the, you know, I didn't have a father in my house. I didn't want to become this Rolling Stone dude. And so I pivoted to television. And it was one of these things that was so hard for, like, you know, everybody in, in my group. And, and this was when television wasn't sexy. It wasn't like, um, hey, get a TV show. As a matter of fact, mine was on TV land at the time. And it was like, it was not like this, you know, in a way, this smart move to do. But it worked out. I feel really great that I was able to be a part of my kid's life and be at home and have a schedule where I can go to work and come home and do that. And again, you kind of lose that that shine or that trajectory where you're, you know, you're this guy that's going to be a big, you know, box office star or whatever, and, and kind of letting that be your goals. I think that was really something that I felt like identified me as a human being, like when I just chose to be quiet and bring it down and do the right thing for uh, being a part of these kids' lives. And so in my, in, in my, my wife and my marriage. And now you're a proud grandfather, right? Uh, yes. <laughs> Look at that smile. <laughs> you know, you have to, it's a hard choice to make. But I do think that having that base, those children, knowing they can count on their dad, yeah. knowing that there's safety in that and consistency and love, I also believe gives longevity to a career because you're not going to stop working. You're just going to find different ways to stay creative, which you have done. I mean, American Buffalo on Broadway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, really, that is one. I'm so sad I didn't get to see you in it because I love 
I loved, I loved that play. But that's no joke. It was no joke. Definitely my hardest thing I ever had to do as an actor. Uh, you know, I tell people that all the time. You know, I, like I would lean on my comedy uh, ability. Even <laughs> even to do dramatic roles, I would lean to my comedy. But to do American Buffalo, to do Broadway was the first time that I had to understand that Broadway is about the playwright. And it's not about the actor. The actor is there as a vessel to, for the play. Mm-hmm. So, so <laughs> Word perfect. Yeah, word perfect, right? And so, you know, as a comedian, you know, you like, you know, if you get stuck in a moment, you know, you used to being able to use your wits and just like <laughs> kill it. And so I remember like just how hard that was for me to kind of, you know, entertain, like kind of understand like that was a real thing. And so, uh, but, you know, working with John Leguizamo on there and uh, Haley Bill Osmond and John was, you know, a Broadway pro. He had done many of his his plays and he just, and he'd actually did the movie Honeymooners with me. So we knew each other and it just ended mm-hmm. up being a great, you know, space for me to, uh, you know, like really kind of get off and, and, and learn about acting, like real acting. And it was probably one of my greatest experiences uh, where I felt like I stretched and grew and became something different. And realized what you are really capable of, you know, which you just don't know. And stretching as a, as it's an, you have to be an athlete. I mean, you're doing eight a week and you have to be an athlete. Yes. And then when something works one night and it doesn't work the next, and then you're just trying to milk that one, one little laugh that's there or that one, whatever. Yeah. And then I would start, you'd come off stage and you'd just say to the stage manager, don't give me a note about that because. <laughs> I know I was being greedy and I will not do it tomorrow. <laughs> but is there a, a, a anything that you are most proud of? I mean, I, I think that I really just kind of love the fact that I've had this great career that that feels like it's always been kind of on an upward trajectory. I feel really proud that, you know, I never had any like – you know, crazy, you know, downfalls that, you know, that that came with me being in the news or being chased by the police in the middle of the night, you know. Mm. And I think that's exciting for my E True Hollywood story. <laughs> I might just do one just uh just just for my E True Hollywood story. It's like just pick a night where I'm just gonna go on a wild chase and let people like go on a drunk binger. <laughs> I used to say, I wonder if I can fake check myself into rehab. <laughs> Could you imagine? Because I would say, I was like, I didn't have that. So I'm like, what can I do where it's really not a downfall, but then I at least get a reputation? <laughs> I used to do a whole joke about I need it in Hollywood. You need a scandal agent. Yes. You need to have your regular agent in an agent that knows how to put you in a scandal <laughs> so that you can become really popular. That was Cedric the Entertainer. If you want to hear more from him, go pick up a copy of his new book, Flipping Boxcars, available online and at major retailers. I loved it, and I hope you do too. That's it for us today. Talk to you next week. Now What with Brooke Shields is a production of iHeartRadio. Our lead producer and wonderful showrunner is Julia Weaver. Additional research and editing by Darby Masters and Abu Zafar. Our executive producer is Christina Everett. The show is mixed by Bahid Frazier. Hey. 
Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is... To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.